podcast producer Trent here. Today's episode uh, with Robin and Josie is all about particle physics, and we're joined by Savannah Clawson uh, from CERN, and she also happens to be a PhD student, and her PhD supervisor is our other guest for today, which is our friend Professor Brian Cox. Uh, If you watched this episode on the live stream, we had a few technical problems with this episode. Robin's uh, broadband went down, so he dropped out for a bit. Uh, Brian's camera wasn't working, so he was uh, just audio for the show, uh, which doesn't really affect you if you're listening to the podcast. But anyway, background. Remember, we are doing, uh, part of the reason we're doing uh, the Stay at Home Festival shows is to raise money for venues and performers who are hit hard by this pandemic. So you can go to cosmicjambles.com slash stay at home and drop a tip in the tip jar there. Or if you'd like to support us at Cosmic Shambles, patreon.com slash bookshambles is the address to do that. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to Shambles College, uh, as it is now, Shambles Stay at Home Festival. And uh, today uh, we have with us, we have Brian Cox, but Brian Cox, due to a technical issue, is only going to appear uh, by voice. And uh, in fact, not even by voice, he will merely tap his answers like a circus <laughs> horse. He will tap three times for uh, epithetics. Not, not enough. <laughs> not, not enough circus horses in the media. Oh, it, it is, uh, that's the one thing is very often I turn on, on and there and there I see, you know, some scientific advisor. I go, well, that's very interesting. But for purposes of balance, what about a horse that can mm-hmm. tap out mathematics? Mm-hmm. That might give us a little bit more. And you know what? They all get forced to predict the World Cup when they've got so much more to give, haven't they? Well, it's a very much a similar octopus situation as well. And we may well talk about uh, uh, the octopus with, uh, with, with Brian as well. But Brian can is with... Just... Can I just say, Robin, if it were true that a horse could tap out mathematics with its foot, that would be worthy of broadcasting because it would be astonishing. It would mean that a species other than us can do mathematics, especially with advanced mathematics. I know. It might be epidemiology. It might be extremely useful. I know. Well, also, I want to get this horse out of my house. I don't live in a big house. And during isolation, frankly, it's been an absolute nightmare cleaning up after it. So um, you've got a horse You've got a horse in your house that can do mathematics. And yeah, you've I not mean, got it on screen. I mean, it's only just starting on calculus. Um, <laughs> this is the problem is, due to the hooves, wonderful at actually mathematics, terrible at managing to press his iPhone to get the correct connection because he's not in the same room, you see. So are, are you? There we are. Um, this is There's uh, a song on Moon and Me, the children's TV show, about about if there was a horse in the house. Uh, and I felt so excited to share that. And then I was like, oh, you don't have two-year-olds. You won't care. <laughs> but you do know, Brian, you know about, uh, the, the, you know about the counting horses that used to exist. Oh, yeah. Don't you? Yeah. Oh, there used no. to be. It, it was basically it was an old trick where, and people would make quite a lot of money from this, which was uh, using various different ways of getting a horse to uh, um, tap out on its hoof. Uh, correct answer. Now, what is your question? 
three plus five. Let me turn to the horse. And then the horse would appear to have done the arithmetic in its head. But actually, it was uh, through uh, a method of uh, training uh, gesture and probably sometimes uh, forms of torture as well. So it turned out it was not uh, a mathematically minded horse. Uh, but for a while, there was a lot. Of... In the old days, that's what you would have done. You wouldn't have been working at CERN. You'd have been traveling from town to town with a horse. And it'd be called Brian Cox's Wonders of Stables. And it would have been great. Um, the, uh, so anyway, welcome to the show. Uh, we weren't expecting to get so deeply into a counting horse there. Um, as you know, it's uh, very erratic and it's live and, uh, sometimes we've had sleep and sometimes we haven't. Uh, so I'll just quickly tell you a couple of things, which is, uh, coming up tomorrow, we've got Ian Rankin on. He is going to be talking about crime and pop music, you know, the, uh, sometimes mixing the two, there may be a shaded area. Um, and then Monday next week, we, uh, Johnny Lynch. Oh, oh Scottish special. So Pictish Trail will be joining us as well. And then on Monday, we have uh, Mark Gatiss. We're going to be doing all those Q uh, questions that you sent in uh, a few weeks ago. Mark's also, he's going to be our literary professor. I have no idea, by the way, Josie. I've, I've been watching all of Sherlock again because uh, my son's really into it at the moment. I had not known quite how enormous that show was. I had not known that that was basically one of the big, like 13 million people watched wow. Sherlock. It was, it was, uh, and it's fantastic to return to it. I think I enjoy it uh, e even more, actually. But anyway, yeah, we've got Mark on next week. We've got Sophie Hagen on next week. We've got Richard Wiseman on next week. Uh, we've got loads of, uh, so, so find out what's going on there. And also, quickly mention again as well, we have a tip jar. And the tip jar is we have been building up over the last five weeks, it is now that we've been doing these shows. Over the last five weeks, we're building up a resource for uh, some of the performers, musicians, uh, comedians, artists, etc., who've been particularly hard hit by this situation and also for some of the art centres as well which you, you may well have seen there's, there's quite a few the, the Bill Murray pub which is a really wonderful uh, um, venue where lots of great experimental things go on there and just lots and of just loads of comedy sorry Josie it's run by very very kind generous thoughtful people, people who love comedy and want to enable people to do good comedy and become comedians it's such a lovely place in terms of community and spirit yeah, it is, and it's, uh, and that's another one of the uh, venues now, which looks like uh, it's, uh, it's uh, got some some problems and some some hope as well of staying open, but it does need support. So we are trying to find different ways of taking some of the mo money that we've uh, accrued thanks to your generous donations and making sure that it's passed around to uh, some of the smaller venues that are struggling at the moment, and we want them to exist when we are able to go out into the streets again. Um, so, Josie, have you got a show and tell this morning? Oh, you got a sneeze. That is my favorite. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. So tell me, when did you first find that sneeze? That's a wonderful thing to show and tell. I found it in the dawning of spring. Of spring. And it <laughs> me until the winter. Um, this is something that I painted in 2008 at the Pottery Cafe around the corner from where I used to live in, um, in Peckham Rye. And it really reminds me of a time hanging out with my friend Helen Zaltzman and doing lots of crafts. And it was her birthday yesterday. She had a big birthday yesterday. And um, I painted this in the style of tattoos that I didn't really know about and couldn't really at that time Google readily. Um, and it's a mug that has kept me happy for well over a decade and very proud of it, proud of my artistic achievement. And this morning, it was full of coffee 
And I just put it on the bedside table there, um, very excited that I actually had a full cup of coffee to enjoy while we did this show. And then I went to put the kettle on to make my partner a cup of tea. And when I came in, my daughter was pouring it all down herself, drinking it and covering the mug with it. Oh, God, you should think you think you've got trouble. I made a strawberry milkshake the other day and I left it near my horse. <laughs> disaster. The... Um... <laughs> The um, I, 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 sh- I, I know it the other day, but there is Helen Zaltzman's work as well. So, uh, uh, wonderful piece of, of of work that she did, and uh, and as I mentioned, she used used to be the regular xylophone player of our uh, our club night, the book club. That's a lovely mug. I was just I, I wasn't sure what I was going to. I have got this DVD box set of series one Star Trek, and the only reason I pulled this out is it's one of those things you know when you go, oh, this is really good. It's in novelty packaging that will never be annoying when attempting to shelve it. Right. So yeah. So it's just that thing novelty is that is that a phaser i think it's, i think it's in phaser shape anyway it's very annoying but you must have been very excited when you saw it you must have thought oh wow what you a know cool what happens object. it's in the computer exchange isn't it you go in there they're playing death metal that mm-hmm. has a hallucinogenic quality for you and mm-hmm. the next thing is you get a really annoyingly packaged star trek series one um but what i actually wanted to show was this which i mentioned the other day when we did our patreon only uh um show uh remember if you uh, do subscribe to us for our patreon there'll be all manner of special treats but this is a really this is the book that i mentioned to you which i couldn't find um and i was just digging out the other day and this is it's the um the holocaust survivor cookbook oh yeah uh, which i mentioned and it's just such a fascinating, for those of you who didn't hear about it, it's it's a collection of recipes that were put together uh, by uh, Jewish people who survived the Holocaust. And so, of course, on, on each page, there is the description of what happened, what happened to their family, uh, and then what happened to their life after the Second World War. And then it's connected to their favourite recipes and it's a very beautiful there's arlette baron's fruit cake there yeah and and as we were saying the other day that kind of connection between memory love and and cooking you know it's it's, it's something that's been explored the stuff of time. life it's the stuff of life it is it's really um i love Z, zd and bubby's apple cake which is mm. great there we go and zd he, he he survived the holocaust and what i like there is though it just says in brackets zd would peel the apples so what we know is he didn't actually get round to the cooking. Bobby would do the main work, but Zini would be in charge. So it has it's it's okay. a very, very very beautiful, interesting book. It's it's it, the, the the recipes, are, and I think also by the act of then making some of the food in it as well, that that creates some sense. I I, I think of um of, of just a you know a, a strange sense of connection with some of the stories in there. So I would highly recommend if you are able to get. Some, and it's also like a. Uh, a way to sort of honour someone and celebrate someone, isn't it? You're yeah. you're like conjuring them up. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's it's a very beautiful book. So that's that's our show and tells. Uh, me, it was the uh, the Star Trek box set, and that <laughs> was it. Was a sneeze and a mug. Mine was a cap. So <laughs> no, we all do our own thing, aren't we? <laughs> a sneeze, a mug, and a spillage. All of them shown. A sneeze and a mug from Josephine Long. When I was a kid. And my mum was very, very encouraging of my performing. She introduced me to on some uh, talent show, uh, I think at church, uh, with a smile and a song from Josephine Long. And I've oh. never forgotten it. And I should use it for something because it's so sort of cheesy. But 
I mean, oh, well, that that is great though, because that is yeah, the smile and the song, which was a great way of often introducing. But I think the smile and the song, Josie, is, is the time. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to be careful. Some people will eventually go. Um, look, we've come here for the song because Chris yeah. Addison, who we had on the other day, yeah. he once called one of his shows "Gentleman Scholar Acrobat," which some oh, of you yeah. like is from the film. Is from is is from the song "The Pink Panther." He's a gentleman scholar. He's an acrobat, and he would get all people coming. Like for instance, he had a whole Spanish family coming oh, who. Yeah. Um, uh, didn't speak English and had come to see this incredible acrobat. Instead, they just heard a man talking about sliced mushrooms. But that is on him because had that, he should have just put one flip in there unexpectedly really? and, and people would have lost their minds. People would have been over the moon. I would love to be able to do things like that. I would lo- it's like, I'd love to be able to suddenly go into a tap dance. <laughs> Johnny's just come in the room looking absolutely stricken and said, She's very lively. And it's because she's drunk some coffee. Drunk coffee out of art. The two yes. most potent things, <laughs> art and coffee, have been kind. <laughs> the, um, we're also joined today as well by Brian. Uh, we're, we're joined by Savannah uh, Clawson, who has been working out in, in CERN. Uh, she's Brian's PhD student. She uh, is uh, a, a physicist. And uh, you're not in CERN at the CERN moment, though, 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 are you? Hello, hello. Hi. No, I'm not in CERN at the moment. I'm actually at home in Devon with my family, but I'm longing to be back there when it's safe to do so. Can I ask, so what your, your, your current, is your current research in CERN? Okay, so I work for the Atlas Detector, which is one of the four big Large Hadron Collider detectors out at CERN. And specifically, I'm in the standard model group. So I'm doing precision tests of our standard model of physics because we, we know that basically it has to break somewhere, but we're not really sure where. So we're just throwing all the tests we can at it and trying to break it or trying to prove that it's right again, because it seems to always be right at the moment. So that's what I do, basically. Specifically, I'm looking at um, photon-photon collisions. So we smash light particles together at really high energies and see what happens, which is the spirit of physics, really. Well, this is what. Can you explain to people who don't know then what is the the the, the what's the best way of explaining what the standard model is in terms of our understanding of, of the structure of the universe? Okay, um, so the way I like to think of it is the standard model is basically our recipe for the universe. So, in the standard model, we have all of these different ingredients, and these are our fundamental particles. And the standard model is kind of the list of ingredients, which are all the particles, but also the interactions between these particles. And so how they all act together. And this basically, these are the basic laws that build our entire universe. So that's kind of a very quick overview of the standard model. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. But yeah, that's the essential of it. Do you still get a sense of because when when I first when someone was first explaining what the Large Hadron Collider did and, and was first explaining generally what what you know the experiments that had gone on in CERN o- over its history, it it almost does have a level of of magic. I know it's evidence based magic, but the, the ability for for human beings to uh, collide particles at incredible speeds to observe what happens at that point of collision. Do you still find yourself every now and again where you're immersed in actually doing the work? And then you suddenly kind of look up and think, this is, this is pretty crazy that this is, a, you know, something that was not that long ago on a savannah, you know, uh, 10,000 years ago, we're developing farming. Now we're sending around particles at incredible speed, uh, colliding and observing them. Yeah, completely. Like every day I'm amazed by the stuff that goes on at CERN. Like 
it like I, I don't understand all of the stuff that goes on at CERN at all. It's insane. And just the sheer amount of technology and research and development that has gone into build something like the Large Hadron Collider or even just the Atlas Detector, it's so complicated and so crazy and I can't believe it. I'm actually a tour guide for the Atlas Detector and every time I go down into the cavern, I'm amazed all over again. It's It's so, so big and so just, yeah, incredible that... I, I can't believe it every time I see it. But yeah. Do you, do you find a moment as you're tall? Uh, because I know this is even with Phil, I was talking with Carlos Frank, who's, who's great as a cosmologist based up in Durham. And, and he was once quoted, I think it was the detection of gravitational waves. I'm not, I'm, no, it was the cosmic microwave background radiation. And he was just quoted in, in the press as a leading scientist. And it just said, Carlos Frank said, oh, wow. Now, I think, you know, that that's a nice thing for people to know that even, you know, f physicists who have, a, have an incredible level of understanding, there are still those, oh, wow, moments. And you must see a moment when you're taking, taking people around and you give them one piece of information and you go and you can see there is that sudden silence and that sudden just, oh, wowness. Yeah, completely. I think just the sheer size of the detectors is like the first, oh, wow moment, especially because... It's a bit of a contrast because you're using these massive, massive machines to look at like the smallest things in our universe. Mm. So they're basically like giant microscopes looking at yeah, the tiniest little building blocks of what makes up our universe. And I think that's quite poetic in a way. Mm. Brian, you must have had. Do, do you remember your when, when you first saw that? Do you remember what your action, your sense to it was when you when you first went to CERN? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting because when I first started at CERN um, the LHC was still in, in construction and Atlas was still in construction so actually the Atlas cavern was a giant hole in the ground when I first saw it with nothing in it and, and it's vast you know I, I think something like the the volume of St Paul's Cathedral or the nave of St Paul's Cathedral so it, it's a cathedral sized hole and so you see it empty and it's wow and then the Atlas detector went in and filled it I mean, quite obviously, because you wouldn't dig a bit. Holes are expensive, so you wouldn't dig, <laughs> dig holes that are too big. So, so it, it exactly fits. Um, the, actually, the other big detector, CMS, um, was in fact built on the surface. It's different to Atlas, and bits were lowered down. So that was a kind of different construction. So it, it was very interesting to see the machine under construction. But I agree with what Savannah said. It's... Um, it, there's also one of the magical things you talked about the magic of, of science one of the magical things about CERN is that it exists at all um, we, you go back, it was founded in the 1950s as a, as a laboratory uh, to bring Europe together after the war so it was one of those optimistic projects after the second world war and uh, the, the idea that you could build uh, in its charter it's, it's, a, it's an organisation which exists to advance human knowledge for peace, for peace, for peaceful means. It's in the charter. And the idea that you have an organization, you know, over 50 years later, half a century, that is still delivering the cutting edge of human knowledge. For, and, and it exists to generate new knowledge for the sake of it. Uh, now, uh, having said that, the spin-offs from CERN have been remarkable. Obviously, we're, the World Wide Web famously was invented at CERN by particle physicists in order to share data around the world and to, to, to allow international collaboration for the advance, the advance of human knowledge. And um, the, the medical technologies, particle accelerators are 
ubiquitous in hospitals now. People might have heard of uh, hadron beam therapy or proton beam therapy for cancer, but radioactive isotopes with chemotherapy treatments, all those things are um, spin-offs from this kind of curiosity-led exploration of the universe. Uh, MRI scanners, you know, all those things. So, so I think it's a one of the magical things about it is, as I said, it's the, the very fact that it exists at all. That we still, you know, we still agree with a broad agreement across all, many countries, if not most countries in the world, certainly all developed countries, that it's worth spending money on accumulating knowledge for no other reason than it's a valuable thing to do. Do you, do you find it, just when you were mentioning there the, the World Wide Web and you, you were saying yesterday, I think, you were on Lorraine Kelly and you said something reasonably anodyne and then, of course, there was hoo-ha on social media. Do you think that perhaps we could bring in <laughs> regulations for the internet where uh, when you post them, it says, I'm afraid this is not data. So we, we have to bring back some kind of data proviso for how the internet is used again to, to bring it back to a level know. of sanity. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think in general, the, the idea that the um freedom the, the internet always was about the free dissemination of knowledge that's why the world wide web was invented not not the, inter the internet was a separate thing but the world wide web in particular so i think ultimately i mean a lot of people who are much more qualified than me think about these things the way that our politics has gone has it been influenced by social media and so on um fake news all that. it's obviously a very complicated area but I think ultimately the, the answer, you can go back to pre-World Wide Web days and look at, um, for example, Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World, I know one of your favourite books, one of my favourite books. And ultimately, I think the point he makes in there is very simple, that the, the answer is ultimately education, that it has to be, that we, we have to teach our citizens how to uh, think, how to understand to, to make their, their decisions about what is a trusted source and what isn't, to weigh different points of view, to recognize when different points of view are valid. You know, we, we do not live in a binary world. It is very complicated. You see it with the, with the debate over the coronavirus. Um, if you look at one extreme, um, and it, I, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the, the choice is somewhere in the middle. One extreme would be that you absolutely lock down the whole of society. You forget about all other impacts and you eliminate the virus, uh, which you could do, right? You could, if everybody stayed indoors for, I don't know what the number is, but let's say six months, then the virus would go away, right? However, you would irreparably damage economies, you would put people out of business, and also there are secondary problems, like people don't go to their GP to perhaps be diagnosed with cancer that could otherwise be treated and so on. So it's extremely complicated. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the, the views of some, some rather more libertarian people who think that what you do is you say, well, 1% of people on average will die if untreated with this or whatever the number is, 2%. And so therefore you just let everybody get it, which is essentially what happened in the Spanish flu outbreak right in the, the 1918 to 1920. Um, obviously, there are compromises and difficult choices to be made. And uh, that's so, so I, I think that, but in order to think that way, I think you have to have been taught. It's not a natural way to think, to but try also, to see other people's points of view. With the way that, like, we can, look, we can look at different countries and see that, like New Zealand, taking swift action to lockdown meant that they didn't need to do a longer-term lockdown thing. They just needed to do that, and then they've eliminated it. So, like, 
it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's, it, it feels like it's less of a debate and more of a like, oh, some countries did the right thing and some countries really made an error here. And fiendishly complicated, though. You know, I mean, there, there are other ways you can do, you can do the very aggressive testing and contact tracing and all that. I mean, I I'm we not an expert. What I do recognise is it, it, I do not envy the policymakers and people who have to make decisions because it's unprecedented and it's fiendishly complicated but that's the point the, the point i'm making is the world that we live in in the 21st century is fiendishly complicated and i don't think that um there are any simple answers to the problem of fake news and and the the, the violence or otherwise of debate i, I think on online and every, i think that ultimately it's about education robin it's has left i mean it's absolutely, um, you've, you've had a profound effect on him with that comment. And I think he's been <laughs> full stop. I think, I mean, I completely agree. I wish that um, as a matter of course, everyone were given more education in things like critical thinking and uh, reasoning and like uh, tools so that they can critically appraise things like media studies that get so derided, but actually learning to read what is appropriate and what is not and what is... Um, Learning to sort of um, decode the media, who is who's saying mm. what and why, is so useful and so important in trying to kind of navigate such difficult circumstances. Yeah, I suppose I should. I suppose I should take over in the absence of Robin. So no, I'm going to ask I'm Savannah. Happy to take over. And then, thankfully, discovering the Higgs was just the first step in the story. Luckily for particle physicists. Um, so basically, we found the Higgs boson, and that was kind of the missing piece of the standard model. It was predicted to exist decades and decades ago, but we hadn't found it. So we'd been looking for it, and then it was discovered back in 2012 um, at CERN. And but now we need to actually test this particle that we found because we don't know if it's necessarily the exact Higgs boson that's predicted by the standard model. So we're doing loads of precision tests of it to see if it interacts in the way we expect, to see if it decays in the way we expect and things like that. Um, and yeah, other things that are going on as well. So there are things that we don't understand, for example, like dark matter, that's a big one. So we know that there is this thing called dark matter out there in the universe, but we have no idea what it is. We know that it must interact through um, by gravity, um, but we don't know what it consists of at all. So that's a big thing that we're looking for as well at the moment. So there are lots of ideas that um, maybe weakly interacting massive particles um, create dark, well, our dark matter. Um, so we're looking for if these particles might interact with the standard model at all and if we can see them and detect them at the LHC. Uh, yeah, so that's just some of the ways that um, we're going and things we're looking for at the moment. And can, can you describe what, there might be people listening who think, I, I quite like to do a PhD. Um, mm -hmm. uh, can you describe what it, what it entails? I mean, what the, now, now you're at CERN for this year, 18 months or so, doing research. So what does it mean to do, do research at CERN? Yeah, so for me, um, I do basically data analysis, do data analysis um, on the large data. Large collider data. So, so what that involves on a day-to-day -day basis is writing a lot of computer code to analyse all of the data. So generally, it's kind of like having an office job. So I'm doing research, I'm sat at my computer writing code. Um, but on a larger scale, working at somewhere like CERN, it's such a massive international collaboration that you get to meet people from so all over the world. I work, so people. I work with people from America, from from Europe, like from everywhere, basically. And 
that's one of the great things about working at CERN is working in such an international environment. Also, we get to um, the opportunity to be tour guides at CERN. So like I was saying for the Atlas detector, which means I actually get to go and see the big thing that takes all of my data, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, so that's what my general day to day involves at the moment. Well, not at the moment because I'm at home in Devon, but usually. We've had some people um, emailing questions that they'd like to ask you both. Um, and Robin's back as well. Or oh, he was back, but he's frozen up now. But we get a nice picture of Robin's stay-at-home academy. Six-year-old Edith has got a question, which is very cute, uh, which is, what is the Milky Way? Um, but I suppose we people know, but it would be nice to, like, explain to her. Oh, yeah. Robin's gone again. But we've got, a, oh, we've got a very a good question from John as well, which links in, I suppose, which is that if you had a choice of one galaxy to visit in person, which would it be and why? And how far away? So, yeah, we have lots of cute questions like that. Yeah. I feel like Brian should take these ones as the um, astrophysics documentary guy. <laughs> so the first one is, what, what is the Milky Way? It's, um, it's actually a very good question. I think it's part of the... Uh, part of the key stage whatever it, whatever it is syllabus now which is really interesting um, but it's uh, so at one level it's the stars uh, uh, so, so the bit we see are the stars that shine it's our galaxy and there are something like 200 billion perhaps anything up to 400 billion stars in our galaxy so we, we it's actually an active area of research just how many stars there are because it's hard because we're looking at the galaxy from within so it's quite hard to map it but it's, it's basically an island of 200 billion stars, let's say. But actually, that's only about um, probably something like 5% of the mass of the galaxy. Most of it, as Savannah said, is dark, dark matter. matter. Uh, so probably 85, 90%, again, active area of research, is dark matter, which is probably some kind of particle that we haven't yet discovered. We, we're hoping still to glimpse that particle to discover it at the LHC. But it's some kind of particle that interacts very weakly with normal matter. That's that's 85, 90% of it. And actually, the other 5, 10% or so is dust. So there's more dust in the Milky Way than there are stars and planets. So that's the, that's the answer. It's a huge island of dark matter with a few little things hanging off it, like a sort of condensation on a spider's web on, in the morning. And those little things are stars and solar systems in us. That's a very um, beautiful um, way of putting it. It's really evocative. evocative. Can I just ask, as, as, as I've only just joined, was that uh, Edith's question, six-year-old yeah. Edith's question? I thought it might be. I only caught the end of that. Uh, that's great. There was a second question as well, wasn't there? Yes. It was, if you had a choice of one galaxy, one galaxy to visit in person, which would it be and why? And how far <laughs> away is it? Every, but I tell you what, I'll give you an answer first, and then sit back. And I, I would say, if it's a galaxy far, far away, it'd probably be Star Wars. Having said that, it's not a very relaxing place, is it? <laughs> it's in constant turmoil, so I'm not sure. Maybe this one, because this because one, this one, has got our beautiful planet in it, and it's a it's a nice place to be. Yeah, yeah this, is, this a, is a question I've I've never really thought about this before. It's a it's a good question, but um. I'm not sure what galaxy I'd visit if I had the choice, but um, they're all very, very far away. So I think that's the problem at the moment. It would take quite a long time to get there. So I think one of the closest ones is something like 25,000 light years away. So that means it would take light 
25,000 years just to get there and I can't travel that fast so it'd take me quite a lot longer so that's the first problem I've got to overcome. So that's an experimental physicist's answer, right? It's not which one do you want to go to? Because the- theoretical physicists will go, oh, yeah, well, you know, we could roam the universe. But it's a good point that we're never going to get to another galaxy. I'm sure we're never going to get to another galaxy. I mean, it's, the best, but it's actually the-, the Andromeda galaxy, the nearest big one, is about two million light years away, which is the nearest large galaxy, although there are smaller little satellites of the Milky Way. But we're not going to any of them. But I think you're allowed to dream, because this is like if somebody said, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? You can't go, well, I'd have to do my job, so I couldn't live any... You know, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, sorry, that was, I gave the boring answer. No, no, it's engineering. <laughs> it's engineering and experimental physics. There's some things you just can't do. But also, but, it gives more interesting information surrounding it to people, people as well, you know. It's important to understand the actual dimensions of these things. This is quite a good link into my show and tell as well. well. So my my show and tell is also a coffee mug. So this was my secret Santa gift this year from um, the Manchester Particle Physics Group. So first of all, we've just got the standard model of physics on one side. The Higgs boson is missing, I realised this morning, but we've got all of our all of our quarks and all of our yeah leptons down here and all of the force carriers here. But the best part about it is on the other side, we've got galaxy and also brian <laughs> the Earth. so <laughs> this is my show and tell for today so there's brian, brian actually creating the earth there yeah. i'm not saying that that's <laughs> given him godlike abilities but that mug may suggest there is potential yeah i'm it's not bit, sure where on the internet this was found but it's, it's a bit deep <laughs> it's a bit deep isn't it it's a bit, well, you've um, got it, it's the hands uh, it, it's the way that you're <laughs> the whole world in his hands he's got the you know it has that it's uh there's a I song and everything gonna, you know you're gonna sing maybe josie can give us that song well, josie Little Little does a smile and a song, <laughs> smile and a song. <laughs> happy to oblige um while i was away did you ask Haley age nine's question by the way uh i'm not sure if you got this one um this was from the other day she, um uh Haley, who uh her, her mum would also like to mention uh, brian that uh, Haley thinks you have a lovely smile uh, she's just finished watching the planets nine years old and she would like to know are all of the planets in the trappist one system tidal locked or just some and which one appears to be most likely for life in your opinion so Trappist One, I think, is the. I'm um, just going to check. Is the planetary system around a white, uh, a red dwarf star? Um, and if that is correct, it is. So yes, they will be tidally locked. And um, what tidally locked means is, so, so our moon is tidally locked. So you you might think, well, it's strange, isn't it, that one we all, we only see one face of the moon, because the moon is spinning on its axis, as is the Earth, and the whole thing is is choreographed seemingly miraculously such that the the orbit of the moon is synced up with its spin and so we only see one side of the moon um but that's actually a natural consequence of gravity in the way that gravity works so over time if you've got a a planet orbiting very close to a star and and all planets around red dwarfs are orbiting close uh, then they they will tend to over time get into this so-called tidal lock scenario and mercury is another one mercury has a very uh, a, a more complex relationship but a, a relationship between its spin rate on its axis and its year which is the the time it takes to go around the star so yes as far as i'm aware because uh, all the planets are very close to the trappist one red dwarf star which is a very small star they're all tidally locked um and then what was the, the second part of that question 
Oh, the second one was, uh, and which one appears to be the most likely for life, in your opinion, which I imagine will be a slightly more uh, problematic uh, question. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because um, several of the planets, as you rightly say, in that system are what we call, we could say potentially Earth-like in the sense that they're rocky planets, the right distance from the star, to, to if the atmosphere is right and the, the conditions are right to support liquid water on the surface. Um, so that's a so-called habitable zone. And there is a habitable zone. It's much closer to the TRAPPIST-1 star because, because it's a small star. So it's a very dim star. So the habitable zone is closer in. Because all this whole system, by the way, would fit inside the orbit of Mercury if you overlaid it over our solar system. So it's, they're very close to the star. Um, but there's a big debate, um, so, and, and this requ requires climate modelling and so on, about whether a planet where imagine that the earth always presented one face to the sun so imagine that the let's say um the, around let, let's say the bit around from greenwich you know the greenwich meridian outwards to some some um longitude always pointing towards the sun and then the other side of the world always was perpetual night always pointed out into space so the atmosphere would transmit heat from the day side to the night side um, so there's a very interesting question about whether that system is stable enough, that planet is stable enough to support oceans, let's say, or lakes on the surface or life on the surface. Um, and the answer is not known, I think, that a lot of people model it. But you can imagine how difficult it is to model the climate of a planet where one face always points towards the star. So the answer is we don't really know yet it's one of the reasons these places are fascinating and the, the other thing i'll just say is that most stars in the milky way to go back to the question earlier are red dwarfs so we, we say things like there are you think one in ten of the stars in the milky way on average has a rocky earth-like planet around it somewhere um, 20 billion that means 20 billion earth-like planets potentially but most of them of course are around red dwarfs and so many of them will be tidally locked. And so are, are they places where complex life could develop or life could emerge? We, we, we're not sure. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if you've asked, uh, have you asked Giles's question, Josie, about uh, what could parents be pointing out to their children with oh, materials okay. available in the home? So I think it's because a lot of people are homeschooling. In fact, I think the, the reason we've got a technical issue with you and the reason that I crashed out is both because our children are currently doing all their internet <laughs> homeschooling work at the moment. It's much easier during the Easter holidays. But yes, looking at things around the home to try and build up or question things about the universe and use for science. I wonder, Savannah, is there anything you, you particularly think is 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 useful for people at the moment so so i was actually um the university of manchester have a really good physics outreach team and they've been doing this thing on social media at the moment where um, they're encouraging everyone to do physics at home experiments um so i i can try and find all the links um so that you can give them to people but basically they've been getting all of us that are involved in the outreach group to do our own physics at home experiments so i've been nominated to do it and i haven't yet so tony i promise i am going to do it soon um, <laughs> so i'm going to make elephants toothpaste i don't know if you've ever seen that experiment done before so um you can do it generally with stuff you've got around your house i've actually got a whiteboard here that i've written for when i do my experiment um so what you need is basically like yeast and some warm water some washing up liquid um, some food coloring and then hydrogen peroxide solution which you can buy generally in pharmacies 
and things like that. And then you mix it all together and it creates this um, chemical reaction, basically, where all of it all froths up and expands and becomes what looks like giant toothpaste, essentially. So that's an experiment you can do at home. But yeah, the physics outreach group at Manchester are really, really good. And they have loads of cool little experiments like this um, that you can do with stuff you find around your house. So that's a really good resource. And I'm sure loads of other unis and places have things like that as well. There's also there's a fun thing to make as well. You know, Ublet? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's uh, fun. I, I think we we did a, ages ago on Radio Four. Did a show called The Science of Doctor Seuss, and uh, Mark Miodovnik from University College London. We we uh, a bit of corn flour and uh, a bit of food coloring, and you've got Doctor Seuss's Ublek magical. Yeah, Ublek. very very messy though. So definitely put some newspaper down or something if you're going to make Ublek. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is. Uh, I was lucky. I did do it in laboratory conditions. <laughs> um, Brian, what about you? Have you in terms of those things around the house in terms of ways of, of finding different ways of people connecting with scientific ideas is there any advice you would give well um i mean i could um i could publicize the um the initiative i've been involved in which is with the with the bbc the bite size initiative so if you, if you go online um and, and i know that my, my son at the moment is uh, his school uh, having him use some of those resources and they're being broadcast all the time they're, they're on the red button they're also online and there's a whole lot of background information as well so if you are homeschooling there is a that's a what i would call a trusted resource so it's 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 you know the, one of the problems i think many parents have is and i have the same problem in, in subjects i don't know much about is i could go online if if part of the that the school say well can you learn about um i don't know uh, history that t- 15th century monarchy in britain or something then i could type that into google but who knows what'll come up right i don't know i don't know whether i so so that idea of a, of a trusted source i think and as savannah said also the universities so if you go to a university site or you go to the bbc or you go to some some kind of accredited site that's the way to do it i think uh, that's the advice i would give it's interesting isn't it because i do know that you know google's algorithms and system now is much better in terms of being but it's it was an interesting the other day talking to matthew uh um uh marshall uh, michael marshall from skeptics uh on merseyside where he was saying youtube still has uh, a very erratic system that is means that if you are looking up scientific information and you put in a phrase you may well the first 20 results may be utter boulder dash so i think you know in particular there uh yeah but you're right i think using again critical thinking working out where this resource is from why it's been made and all of those things is a very important part of it basically if it ends in .ac.uk hmm. you can trust it <laughs> number one that's a, that's a good starting point and I'll just mention, I, I think we'll probably wind up now because we've had we've had quite a few technical difficulties today. And we will, as I said, hopefully back at uh, 3 p.m. on Sunday, we'll be doing the uh, the regular Sunday science Q&A. And with luck, Brian will be joining us uh, on that uh, with on screen as well. And remind you of the tip jar as well, which is at the bottom of here, which is to collect a, a, a fund uh, for various people in various venues that have been hit hard by this. And uh, Josie, you've got your hand up. Yes. Also, at, also 12, at 12 o'clock, I'm going to be streaming my show Tender. Uh, which is my stand-up show that I was supposed to be performing in Sydney this weekend. Um, So instead, I'm going to be performing it in my living room slash kitchen slash dining room. (laughs) But in an Australian accent for the whole thing. Um, Yeah, please, please, if you can't see it, 12 till about two, a little interval in the middle. Well, last time I saw you in Sydney, it was a really great show as well. 
Oh, so I think it's, it was a really good show when I, I saw you out there. The um, yeah, so uh, so we'll be back tomorrow morning as well with uh, Ian Rankin, and uh, we will then be back. Uh, we've got Sunday Science Q and A, and Monday we've got Mark Gatis, and in between there's the Children's Science Show on Saturday as well. Lots of stuff going on. We're probably gonna we're starting to rethink what we're actually going to do over the next few weeks. Now we've been doing this by the end of next week. It'll be six weeks. So if you have ideas or things you'd like us to do. Yeah, six weeks. Oh. By, uh, by the end of next week, six weeks. So we're, we're planned out with this as a kind of structure for the next six, for, for sorry, till the end of, of next week, which will be six weeks. If you've got ideas of other things you would like us to do, then uh, please get in contact and uh, and tell us. The final things I wanted to quickly ask, because you, you were mentioning this again, I think, on Lorraine Kelly the other morning, but the sky at the moment is, as you know, a lot of people have a lot more time to look up at the sky. And this is a very good time, it seems, as well. Last night when I was looking around at various different things, you know, Elon Musk taking over the sky, which worried me, though, because I watched Day of the Triffids the day before, the old 1981 TV series. And, of course, you look up the lights in the sky then and uh, everyone goes blind in its dystopian future mm -hmm. where the plants take over. So I'm still a little bit careful looking at the sky. But, um, Brian, what at the moment are the most exciting things that people should be looking out for tonight? Well, I think everybody, virtually everybody, has been noting Venus in the in the evening sky. It's the brightest thing in the sky. It's the it, it appears uh, even before the light has gone after sunset. It's so bright, and it's um. But then, if you if you really want to, there's a spectacular show in the morning. If you get up um, just before dawn, so let's say four a.m. or something, I think maybe five a.m. So before the sun rises, you'll see uh, Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn all in a line um, in the east, sort of east, southeast, and and they're they're quite close to the horizon at that time. So it's better if you've got a pretty clear horizon to the east. But you'll see those, and and they're rising in in the morning, and they're beautiful. And, and you can see if you've got a good view and you're away from city lights, you'll you'll see the colours. So you'll certainly see that Mars is quite red, um, and it's nice to see three planets in a line. So wow. that's about about four a.m. is the best time to yeah, to four, four to five a.m. Yeah, before dawn. Yeah, hey, you can see that my friend Nell Frizzell, who wakes up every morning criminally early just because she's so full of beans. And well, we should have she, her yeah. on this as well. Oh, my dream. I would love that. We should do That's a live planet. one. Live planet spotting at 5 a.m. Beautiful. Yeah, for people in Australia. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Savannah, what, is there anything in particular that you've had? It Because, again, I think it's been an interesting time where we've yeah. been able to focus on, on certain areas more specifically. Is there any, anything that has really caught your eye? Your yes, eye? I yes, I know the Starlink satellites have been visible recently, haven't they? So that's really cool. Um, and there's also the Lyrid meteor shower. Um, I don't that I think that peaked on Tuesday, but I'm not sure if that's still visible at the moment as well. So yeah, lots of interesting things to look out for at the moment, definitely. Oh well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Savannah, and uh, thank you, Brian Cox. We will uh, see you as well on uh, on Sunday at three p.m. And Josie, so midday, midday till two, with a little break in the middle for me to drink a cup of tea. Brilliant. Thank you very much for watching, listening, whatever you've done. All of our uh, previous podcasts with uh, so many different guests that we've had on, uh, all of those are also available. You can just listen to them as well. You can you can check out various different sources, SoundCloud, etc., where you can find uh, the podcast versions of these shows. Um, thanks very much for those of you who've been able to leave something in the tip jar. I know not everyone is able to, and that is absolutely fine as well. Uh, but thank you very much for those who, who are contributing to that as well. And thank you, everyone else, for contributing your questions and all those other things.
Um, see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning uh, with Ian Rankin and the Pictish Trail. I'm excited about that. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes, find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment. And if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Oh.